Welcome to Everything Is Up, a podcast about the real-life stories of people who have created extraordinary levels of success. These are conversations with people who are constantly striving to take things to the next level. And now, here's your host... Welcome to Everything Is Up. I'm Tamara, your host today. And joining me is Carlos Yanez with Spartan Carrier Group. Um, welcome, Carlos. Thank you so much for joining us today. Give me a little bit about um, Spartan. Let, let's talk Spartan first. So how did you end up going from writer as this international logistics company to deciding you're going to start your own ground floor, hit it running. What happened? How did that, how did that transpire? Well, first off, Tamara, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And, and that's a, that's a wonderful question. So after the pandemic hit, I realized that there was going to be an issue uh, at the macroeconomic level the shutting down of governments, it was going to affect lead times and really destroy our supply chain. At the time, I was focused on the niche, particularly the automotive niche. And I knew that the impact of semiconductors and other components were going to significantly impair the ability to manufacture goods and services. When I left Ryder, or when I was at Ryder, I, I saw this coming. And I thought it was the perfect opportunity to leave corporate America in order to found and create a company that was agile, responsive, quickly adaptable, and able to maneuver in the post-pandemic arena where you were going to live in this contingency type environment. So yeah. Yeah. understanding the impacts of shutting down governments, reducing lead times, and the geopolitical issues that were taking place at the time, I knew that there would be a significant impact, particularly when it comes to maneuvering goods and services across the country. So what, what I saw would happen were three things. First off, Shutting down the government meant that all these drivers were going to be displaced and all these large companies, particularly the corporations that have uh, tons of drivers and tons of equipment, right? They were going to have to furlough their, their, their capacity, their people. And by doing so, these people were going to be relying on the government to support them. Well, if you're a driver and you break this down to a simple format, right? If you're a driver and you have a CDO, you have a, a skill that's required, particularly to move anything. It doesn't matter what it is, right? If you were serving the automotive sector and automotive stopped, well, guess what? Food still has to get delivered. Medical supplies, uh, uh, building goods and supplies still have to be delivered. So what they did was they had a mass exodus of leaving these corporations and they went out there and started their own MCs. So you had brand new motor carriers, you had non-asset brokerages that were popping up. If you were an executive and you were laid off for whatever reason and you knew how to run a business, well, running a brokerage was smart. Set up a brokerage, you knew that there would be capacity in the market that you could uh, uh, acquire. And if you were a non-asset broker, you could do this from your house. You could do it from your cell phone. So you had guys leveraging their relationships with some of these other companies trying to maneuver, getting this additional capacity. I foresaw that happening. That's the first thing. Second thing I foresaw happening was that this chokehold on the supply chain was going to create a, a uh, shortage of all product. So if you look at all the dealerships across America right after the pandemic, right, uh, vehicle prices were skyrocketing 130, 140% because there was no capacity. So there was a shortage of vehicles. Used car sales are what drives the, the car market, right? That's where you make your biggest margins. It's not on the brand new manufacturing. The manufactured good, like the brand new vehicle, right. usually has an MSRP ticket. The reason for that is because the goods are already pre-priced and, and uh, dealerships may mark stuff up. But there's not a lot of latitude there. And if there's not any new vehicles coming in, then all you have is the used cars. And that's why I, I foresaw that prices were going to skyrocket on used vehicles and there not being a capacity, i.e. not even trucks or trailers. I knew that that chokehold was going to be a perfect opportunity for us to leverage uh, finding capacity. The third thing that I saw was because you had shut down all these governments, there was lead times that are inherent in some of these goods and services. So you have to bring products from other countries. Well, the geopolitical arguments, right? We were fighting against all these different nations. I knew that there would be a delay in providing these goods and services, which meant that there would be an ultimate halt to producing. Yeah. Now, here's where the thing becomes genius. Knowing that, I saw these large corporations that were sitting on all of these massive amounts of equipment. They didn't have the personnel to back them. And because their industry had shut down, they were sitting on a lot of cost. 
So most companies, after they furlough their drivers, start trying to deplete their capacity. So they start selling all of their vehicles. Well, guess who was buying all of their vehicles? You. The same guys that were working for them. People like right. me, I saw that if, if if you don't have drivers, well, somebody, there's a driver somewhere. They didn't just disappear off the face of the planet. And, and there was an impact, right? A third of the driver workforce during the pandemic retired. So oh, the other two yeah. segments of the population at that time, right, became very much a, a, a needed commodity, a hot commodity, right? You can't find a driver anywhere. Well, I realized if I'm agile, it leverage my relationships See if I have an opportunity to negotiate contracts with these larger companies, build my own enterprise. And what I did was I initiated a, a consulting firm. I had to create a consulting firm because I had just left corporate America. I had made that decision. Everybody thought it was crazy. And on 4th of July, I dropped my two weeks notice because I'm ex-military and patriotic. So I want to do something funny. Like, hey, it's the 4th of July. I'm free. Here's my two weeks. So I fulfilled my two weeks, and then I started the company. Uh, I went from a consulting firm to finally building my trucking company. And in order to house that, there's been many rumors. How did he do this? Who did he talk to? Here's what I did. It's very simple. I took the knowledge that I had. Uh, by me leaving, 20 other executives followed. They saw that I had an idea, that I had a plan, that I was ready to execute the plan. And after five or six years of working with me, they knew that everything I said I would do, I would do. So they left corporate America. They left their, their executive jobs and followed me into a startup. I took this consulting firm and I used that to help build um, other companies. So there were there were mid-sized carriers out there that didn't have access to government contracts, didn't have access to uh, uh, large Fortune 500 com uh, company contracts. And we knew how to do that. So I helped them land some business. I one company, I helped them land a $20 million deal with GM. Wow. Another company, I helped them land... Uh, it's a funny story, a $40 million deal with Home Depot. They then had to relinquish to $8 million because they had, they had outplanned the coverage. The capacity told me they had didn't exist. So I had to help them navigate through that commercial conversation and help work out that relationship. And in the midst of doing this, we set up our own operations management center or safety and compliance department or legal support department. We set up an operations uh uh, 3PL type setup where we would support their business and basically in essence run it. We even set up a recruiting firm to go recruit drivers for their enterprises. Yeah. So we received subscription-based services and we used that money, recycled it back instead of going out there and buying boats and other commodities that depreciate. We just built our business, which would be a, a revenue generator. So yeah. we decided to create our own uh, trucking company and, and within a year's time, of building our trucking company, we were able to go from zero dollars to $40 million pretty much overnight. We went from one location to 11 territories and now in the international market, we support Mexico uh, tra transportation. Um, um, it's, been, it's been a crazy journey to, to, yeah. to grow that fast. We scaled from zero employees to 200 employees when we were doing the lease driver business. And then we decided strategically to release the lease driver business to focus all our efforts on this business. And we landed in that time and span of time, the largest dedicated network uh, or the largest uh, automotive manufacturer, which is Toyota. So, for example, there's 750,000 carriers in all of North America, and we're only one of 12 that have a dedicated relationship supporting uh, Toyota's manufacturing arm. Wow. Um, they don't allow anybody in there. So for us to land that, Toyota, the largest manufacturer of automobiles in the, in the world, we're, that's a Fortune 10 company, and we're one of 12 carriers. So wow. amazing, amazing. Uh, uh, amazing. Yeah, so guys, did you hear that? So to coin a phrase that um, I had from a guest last week, Chris Clever, he said, with disruption comes great opportunity. And you are literally the walking proof of disruption and that massive opportunity. You know, the thing about opportunity, though, is, and for all of you guys listening, you have to act. You cannot sit and think it's going to be handed to you. You know, every leader, every business owner I know, people think they're crazy, right? That, that you're like, you're crazy, but... They are risk takers, right? They they see it and failure is never even an option, right? I can guarantee just from me knowing you that fail, you not making this work was never even a thought on your brain. Like, yeah, no, yeah, I, I, that's cool. I mean, when you talk about the supply chain being disrupted, um, 
we had, so everybody knows I have one of the largest balloon companies in the Dallas Metroplex. We could not find a white balloon for like six months anywhere. Like I was going, I'll take them from Spain. I'll take them. But you literally could not find a white balloon. And you want to talk about being crazy. Like you, it wasn't, it wasn't just the automotive. Well, that was the big one because, you know, the conductors and, you know, everybody looking at car lots going like there's no cars. And I mean, it's still being disrupted even now. Um, and we're what, two years out now from the, you know, the pandemic. How do you foresee or do you foresee any of that returning to pre-COVID normal? Like, cause I, I don't even know that normal is ever going to be normal again, but will we see these, will we see autom- automobiles back on the lots like what we saw before? Great question. So here's what's happening right now. Uh, I'll tell you why we were able to break into the market, and then that'll evolve into what's happening now and what I project is going to take place. So I realized that all these large companies, when the pandemic hit after furloughing their drivers, they were going to be sitting on all this equipment cost, right? Well, if they're service providers, right? So the J.B. Hunts of the world, the Schneiders, the Penske's, the Riders of the world, right? You're sitting on all this cost and you have no way to generate revenue. Well, the natural evolution is if you're supporting a particular uh, uh, supplier, like, for example, Tesla, Toyota, any one of these massive manufacturers, and what are you going to do? You're going to ask for uh, a cost increase, right, to recover all your downtime, to recover some of your fixed costs. And that was going to generate a spike in your rates. That's the reason why I jumped. I knew and I calculated specifically that it would take about a one-year cycle whenever they had to renew and renegotiate contracts. And I knew that they had no choice, but they increased their rates to try to recover all their losses. And if I was jumping into the mix at that time with zero history, right? So I'm, I'm competing against companies that have been around for 80 years. Right. It's 80 years worth of sins. That's 80 years worth of business cycles, 80 years worth of infrastructure. If I was like, yeah, I relate. Right. Yeah. But if I was, if I was a nomadic, a transportation producer, right? If I can shift like a military organization and drop ship my people anywhere, I could adjust to the market condition. I could shift it to any region within the country. That made me very dangerous. And they never saw it coming, mm-hmm. right? They never believed that it was plausible that a small force of highly uh, specialized uh, tacticians could maneuver and against a conventional force. It's no different than the military. I, 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 I'm ex-military, so a lot of my my ideology is militaristic in nature because that's what I know. I've, I served my country on four combat tours, and I and I learned a lot. Hung out with a lot of SF guys, like a lot a lot of uh, elite type soldiers who always have these strategic visions, and you could do a lot of day da- a lot of damage with a small element of highly skilled uh, uh, individuals who work as a team. Right. So that's really what it is. Well, here's what's going on in the automotive sector. So I saw that happening. I knew the rates would be outrageous. And I knew that if I called the cost of cost, if I was transparent, if I was quick, if I was agile, if I could shift with the market conditions, that's exactly the flexibility that these manufacturers were needing. And a lot of these corporations are very rigid in their structure and their operational execution. So if they can't adjust to these demands in this post-pandemic, what's it called, contingency type situation, right? right? then they're going to just ask for more money. It was the perfect situation. I figured that life cycle would span about three years and things would normalize. And then something outrageous is taking place. So I'm going to say something's controversial, but it's true. Okay. And I'm, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a faith-based guy. I believe in God and the truth to set you free. The yep. truth is the truth. And you say it even if everybody hates it. Like The devil hates truth. True. But I'll tell you the truth. So there's a hellacious political push. And in my opinion, it is it is a uh, political push. Sure, it's political. I can't call it anything. It's it's one hundred percent political. So you've heard for years and years and years about uh, the environment and the effects of emissions on the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there's a company like Toyota, which has been on the on on the front lines of this, trying to reduce carbon emissions for decades. I mean, Toyota is a very environmentally conscious. Uh, partner. They really want to do the right thing and they want to do the right thing scientifically, not just politically, scientifically, they're actually reducing emissions. 
But there's a difference between emission reduction or carbon emission reduction and electrification. Two completely different concepts. They're 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 highlighted and and portrayed to the consumer base as, as the same. They're conflated. As one, right, as, as one. one. But but they're not. And here's why. Electrification, as it stands today, the technology requires specific minerals. And these minerals that are required in order for that raw form to be mined, right, to be produced, they're hard to find, and they're very expensive to create, right, which, which creates two problems. First problem is the U.S. is one of three in, uh, uh, countries in the world that consume the majority of all automobiles. The second country is China. So the U.S. and China... They're almost hand in hand in terms of production of vehicles or the the consumption of automobiles, right? China for years has invited all the Western companies to move to China to go develop systems. And they have. So every manufacturer has been in China for years. But something very, very suspicious has taken place. But in the last few years, they started kicking these countries out and telling them that there's a mandate that by, I forgot what year, right off the top of my head, they all have to be electric. The combustion engine is gone. They're going to, uh, what do you call it? They're going to legislate that to death. So they're forcing everybody to have an electric vehicle channel, which means that all these automobile manufacturers are panicking, trying to get their their surplus vehicles out of there because they're not going to be registered. You won't be able to register a vehicle in that country, right? So why would they have such a polarizing uh, effect? Why would they shut down all other uh, forms of, of automotive production and focus solely on electrification? Well, here's why. They control 80% of all the minerals they're in their G region, right? The U.S. accounts for it. I'll give you an example. In the U.S., we're trying to push the same agenda in places like California uh, and in highly densely populated areas that have somewhat of the infrastructure to be able to generate electrification vehicles. Right now, I don't foresee them taking hold in all of the other states, particularly because there's no infrastructure supported. Two, because the technology hasn't hasn't uh, evolved enough for us not to be reliant on somebody else's goods and services, right? The U.S. is less than 1% of all the necessary uh, minerals to be able to produce our own vehicles, which means that in essence, if we go down this pathway of fully electrifying the country, right, not only is it not true because it takes a lot of dirty energy to produce these uh, electric vehicles, right? All these batteries got to get mined, right? We live in this thing called the globe. So it doesn't matter if I'm if I am using extreme pollution in India or in China, it's still affecting the whole world because it's in a globe, right? So there's for for for, for the production or the requirement of of um, vehicles that they're they're projecting that they're going to produce, they need to open up about three hundred mines, three hundred new mines, and these mines they don't they they're not operated by solar power uh, solar power. So all, all of this machinery and this industrial machinery, it doesn't function off of solar power, power, right? It's not electrified vehicles doing this, right? So you got a lot of diesel that's going to be used to mine this. And then you have to refine this. Then you got to produce this. And by the time you get to the end user, most likely in the U.S. and or China, right? Now you've got this finished product that looks like the emissions are zero, but it took a whole lot of dirty energy to create that, which is why it's a paradigm. So when you ask the question, where is the industry going towards, it's we're, we're very much in a unique time. You have legislation that's driving the automotive market. It's not even production of vehicles. It doesn't make sense. And why I chose Toyota is because I knew that their strategy was sound. That's the reason why we went after Toyota. I think when all said and done, right, you're going to have Toyota and you got Tesla. The other ones might exist, but the two leaders are going to be Toyota and Tesla. Tesla, because they're smart. They're in a niche. They're particularly in that niche of electrification. They know that if they're legislating this in China, well, they got a leg up. They're going to be able to have the Chinese market, which is the second largest market of automobiles on the planet. And then you have the U.S. They have the U.S. market, right? So if they do push legislation to force the electrification of vehicles, well, they got a leg up. And that's kind of one of the reasons why Elon, I love that guy, he's very intelligent, man. So he's disrupting everything and and, and he's really pissed off and rightfully so. Uh, he's been leading this charge for electrification for a long time and he's built a very vertical type of manufacturing system where they produce the, the products in-house, right? So they're creating the machine to build the machines, to build the machines, to build the automobile. So he's managing like 500 startups simultaneously so that he doesn't need to rely on 
materials from other people. And he's evolving this electrification process to not require these rare materials. I believe that he's onto something very special uh, in terms of actually being able to fight this electrification war, right? On the other side of the house, you got Toyota, who's got a completely different strategy. Toyota's in 170 countries, very intelligent. They understand that not every uh, uh, geographical footprint is stable enough or has the infrastructure to be able to sustain this. Can, can, can you really imagine across all of Africa having charging stations at every corner? That it doesn't exist. He, even even closer to home, let's say in Mexico, there's places in Mexico where the where the electric electrical grid won't, would not sustain this. So understanding all of that, I tell you that the the industry is in a very unique location. So I've doubled down. I support Toyota's initiative. I know that Toyota's got the right attack. They're looking at a portfolio type strategy. They'll dabble in electrification. I think part of the reason they're going to do that is they've seen the 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 enormous gain that Elon's having with Tesla, and and they're not going to miss out on that niche of the market. So I think that they're going to look at a product line, particularly their high end vehicles, and and chase that a little electrification a bit. But the rest of their strategy is trying to truly reduce emissions. Hybrid technologies existed and it works. They're yeah. looking at hydrogen technology. Hydrogen technology also functions. Right. They're looking at how, how can I how can I basically use the current footprint, the current infrastructure and, and shift into another mode of technology that is acceptable. So, for example, it'd be very, very easy to take a diesel uh, uh, unleaded fuel type of gas station and add a hydrogen tank. Oh, sure. change the infrastructure. You can add that to current infrastructure. It's still costly because you have to build this, right? But once it's built, you get to use this, and you have maximum uh, uh, lead times. You don't have the the limitations that you have with electrification. You don't have to charge it every two hours. You have a lot longer roadway. And then there's the hybrid vehicle, right? So you're reducing emissions if you're using a hybrid vehicle because you're not consistently using your electric engine, right? So for that for that reason, I think that Toyota's on something great. And what I believe is going to happen from a capacity perspective, is you're going to see the screws being turned on some of these manufacturers to jump on the electrification bandwagon because politics is really what's driving it. They're using this, this thought process of, hey, we're trying to save the environment because they think it's appealing to the mass public. But if you really peel that onion back and look to the root cause of what's going on, it's really just a political ploy. And I'm interested to see, I hope I hope the FBI doesn't shut me down for this, but <laughs> I'm interested to see who's going to profit from this. Who's going to profit from this? Because if, if all your materials are coming from China. Well, so, and then that begs the next question. If all the materials are coming from China and they have that stronghold over us, because, you know, here in the U.S., or let's just talk Texas for Lord's sake, right? Um, we are not going without our trucks. We are not going without car. You and it takes five hours to get to San Antonio from Dallas. So you, well, you got to stop in Temple to charge, right? So the just the mere logistics of it, right? I agree with you. I I think it's way more political, and I think that it is probably there's some backdoor deals going on, I think that that are happening. And if people would just kind of wake up and look at it from this perspective, how many people are actually talking about this like what you've just explained? I mean, come on, guys, right? Later listeners, you know, if you've thought about it, right? Everybody's like, yeah, I want a Tesla. Okay. Until you have to stop in Temple to charge it because you can't get all the way to Austin or San Antonio, you know, from Dallas. And then at what point does China own us? And then are, has anybody started learning Chinese, right? Or Mandarin so that we can communicate. I, I, that is an it is really a weird spot. Yeah. Here's what's, what's very scary about it is that our greatest hope right now, and, and most people don't like to read, they, they just listen to what they're fed and they don't dig in. I'm going to tell you two things. First thing I'll tell you, if you ever want to find out whether something's true or not, look at it from a practical perspective, right? Common sense. We have a shortage. We have a shortage of, of uh, diesel techs in the world. we got a shortage of drivers. All this skilled labor is dying in our country. Today, a driver can make a six-figure salary. A driver can make six figures. Didn't exist in the past, right? Most people didn't want to be a driver. 
today because nobody wants to be a driver. They pay so well. It's a it's a needed a needed uh, skill. Yeah, we well, have to somebody have needs to fix these trucks, right? So you think about it. You're traveling from California to Texas. You're going down to ten. Um, who is going to drop ship out of thin air to fix an electric vehicle when we can't even find a diesel mechanic, right? And that engine's been around for hundreds of years, right? So you have a practical technology, and we can't find qualified techs to actually service these. But now we're going to overcomplicate things, right? So I, I believe that autonomous vehicles will, will happen, and today they exist, and they function in confined areas, particularly yards, airports, et cetera. Fantastic idea. Here's the problem I see with it being mainstream. Infrastructure doesn't exist. The technology and the techs don't exist to go fix or troubleshoot these things. And the amount of knowledge that you have to have is a completely different paradigm to fix this, right? Yeah. So where are you going to find somebody? You got a load that's coming. Let's say you're hauling materials from California to Texas. It breaks down. You're in the middle of the desert. I got to find a specialist to drop ship, to fly in and pick this up. It makes sense. Practically, doesn't function. So there's a lot of questions about that that we have to fix. And that's why I think that it really is a political move because it doesn't make sense logically. Right. There's no infrastructure support or sustain it. So this legislation of pushing this agenda is kind of somebody's get paid. Right. That makes sense. It's going to it's going to hurt us more than it fixes us. Number two, our biggest hope is I hope that the Lord blesses Elon. I, I really do, because if he figures out how to do the electrification process without needing all of these specific raw materials, which is what, what they're really trying to develop. How do I gain full independence without having to rely on, on lead times from other governments, other countries? That's what he's working on, really. He's working on he's working on a lot of things, right? He's working on space stations. Like there's a lot <laughs> yeah. of things he's dabbling in. The guy's a genius. But specifically, when it comes to automotive, if, if they design a way to, to do that, that's the future. That really is the future. Right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my eyes on that. It's gonna hurt me. Because I'm also, I also understand the business, right? At a certain point, if he's manufacturing all of his goods and services, it only makes sense that he takes his fleet in house. And if he's got the the largest company in the world, right, he's going to be able to do that. He's not going to need to have a service provider such as myself, right? But yeah. what's good for the people? If he finds a way to do that, it'll diminish the need for uh, service providers, right? So he won't be importing as much goods and services. He's manufacturing them himself, yeah, and that therefore he re reduces cost significantly. A significant yeah. portion of the cost that you pay for on a manufactured vehicle is your logistics cost. You got to get all those parts from the tier one suppliers to the manufacturer. You got to get the finished product to the dealerships. When you look at it, there's a lot of cost embedded in logistics. So if you are producing all of your own materials in a house, could only imagine how much cheaper the vehicles are or how much higher the margins are. So from a capitalist perspective, the margins are hellacious. I saw a study just a few months ago where one automobile manufacturer, and I'll leave this nameless because I'm not sure if it's proprietary or not, but one automobile manufacturer made about $1,500 off of every brand new vehicle, where Tesla was making somewhere around nine grand profits for every vehicle, and their cost was reduced. Now, the reason I tell you this guy's a genius is he's figured out, but nobody can tell you if he's right wing or left wing or whatever. He's a capitalist. He doesn't care what, what label you want to put on him. He's looking at, how do I assemble this? If these guys want to give me a rebate or a tax credit for producing a vehicle that, that fits within the confines of their political narrative, so be it. Now I reduce the cost of my vehicle. I reduce the cost of my vehicle. I get kickbacks from the government subsidies to be able to produce this. And at the same time, I'm able to increase my margin percentage because I'm producing all my own components and I'm reducing logistics costs. That's genius. It is, there yeah. So so it it fits perfectly, as you said, genius in a capitalistic society, which is what we still are, question mark, right? Um, because it, it does beg the question of if this political agenda, like you said, follow the money, it is going to be very interesting to see um, because nothing our government has done for probably 50 years has any common sense to it. There is a political agenda to boost someone's ego, to pad pockets of them privately, right? Because they're not turning around and saying, let me pay off this trillion dollar debt that the government has to somebody else. So, so wow, I, I had not thought about it like that. I mean, I'm a little irritated because I can't go buy a new car. 
right? I'm, I'm sitting here with my, you know, my 2017 Lexus and thinking I'm really ready for my SUV and I just can't find what I want, right? Um, Tamara, you brought up an interesting, interesting point about the, the deficit, right? The budget. If we owe all this money and we are giving all of this money, money stops being a matter of, like money is just a, a, a transactional means that has no substance. Right. And here's what I mean by this, right? We've generated so much fake money to the point where we are in this multi-trillion dollar deficit. We continue to give all of these other governments this money. And therefore, nobody thinks about this. How much are we owed by all of these countries that we're giving this money to? So the truth is, it's 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 not real. It right. really is not real. Right. If I owe you hundreds and hundreds of trillions of dollars, right? I've inflated the price of money so that it sounds like it's this big ass number, right? It's hellacious. You can't even comprehend this number. But everybody you give the two also owes you. Nobody's thinking about that. Who owes us money, right? So the truth is, money as itself, I think that is being driven by politics too. I do. Someone too. somehow is driving there to be a reset of money, and it makes sense. Like well, what used to be a dollar, now now is a trillion dollars. You're right. just changing the denomination of how much money is out there, but the transactions are the same. Right. Well, that and, you know, the world currency, you know, has been what the U.S. dollar for how long? And now everybody's talking about Russia and Saudi Arabia and, you know, Africa and, you know, coming up with their own and then making that the new world currency. You know, this is what happened to England. What, how, like, what, 75 years ago? Same thing. Um, so what, you know, history does repeat itself. And we are, if we are being so arrogant, because I kind of feel like that that's where we're at, is we're being so arrogant as a nation to think it won't happen to us. I mean, we, the, nobody wants us to topple more than everybody else in the world, right? Because we, we've gotten a little big for our britches. And I think we have forgotten where we came from, you know? in God we trust, still is on our money, and yet our kids can't worship in school. Like, the, the it's this infuriation of things that are going on and swirling around us. And um, everybody on our, you know, our audience knows I'm Christian, born and raised Catholic, you know, converted to Orthodox when I married my husband. And the devil is coming. Like he, I swear there are days I just come like, you have got to go away. Like you are just a little in my, I don't think like, he's coming. Tamar. I think he's here. He's here. Yeah, no, he's not coming. He's here. No, I agree. 100%. You're not wrong. We, we've, we've turned our backs on God. And when that happens, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's happened in every civilization when you think about it, right? You become modern, you become progressive, and all of a sudden you're smarter. Nobody could tell you how the universe uh, came into existence. We don't understand it. We have theories. Nobody's lived there to understand those things. I tell you, a lot of people, and I have this debate all the time, what is an arrogant person? Who is truly arrogant, right? And and who is humble? Some people conflate the word humble with meaning poor. That's not true, oh, no. right? It's posture. And that posture means that you realize that there's something outside of yourself that's period, right? To be humble is to, to take a step back and to allow glory to be where glory is from, right? I would say that all begins, and this is biblical, right? It, it, it is biblical, right? The beginning of all wisdom is the fear of God. If you can't accept the fact that there's a God that created us with a purpose, then nothing, nothing that you say could be trusted because everything else is a matter of faith also. Right. right. I, my first premise is there has to be a God and there is God. Then you chase who is God? What is God? And the more you chase, the more you find in my walk, in my journey, I've read and I've researched. I don't have a uh, an emotional faith. I have a logical one. I researched. I studied. I studied Christian apologetics. I tried to debunk it. I tried to find every gap that I could. And mathematically, I could not refute what I saw before me. Not just what was in the Bible. What was in the Bible is what, what I live by today because I learned it to be true. But it's not where I started. I started looking at the mathematical uh, uh, accuracy of prophecies. I looked at the historicity of things that took place in extra biblical uh, uh, writings. 
I tried to look at the history of things, right? I looked at when things were written, when they came to be, how things evolved. And in this deep dive, I tried to understand that I came to truth. And when I came to truth, then my faith became unwaverable. And when I realized that, and I realized that we're living in this world where we're fighting a spiritual war, right? You realize the devil is real. And a lot of things that you're motivated by, they're, they're clear as day to somebody who's actually seeking if you, if you live your life in this little bubble and you put your head down and you just do what you're told and you work and you live in this matrix, right? You never accept things for what they are. And when you see things that don't make sense, you really don't question them. You're like, ah, they'll be all right. So a lot of things happening on in the world today. And the only reason that they seem a lot crazier today than they did in the past is because of technology. Everyone has access to it. There's information. Right. The greatest flaw in mankind is our ability to remember things. We have amnesia. Can't remember what happened <laughs> just 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 a year ago, right? Uh, or actually two years ago. Now my time's all messed up. About two years ago, there were there were cities that were burning on fire in protests. There were places you couldn't even have the the, the government go into in our own country. It's crazy. Everybody forgot about that. I was like, Poof. voila, we got a new scandal, a new issue. Everybody's forgot. The media controls all narratives. People don't understand they're being brainwashed. It, it is a a psychological warfare, and it's being used for political gain. And the devil is really driving this. And the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in, uh, here's why I have hope. I have hope because I know how it ends. Right. And because I know how it ends. And I know that at the end of all things, we've already won. Right. I, I take a look at my life and I try to impact as many people as I can in a positive way. I understand what's going on in the world. I interpret the things that are happening and I try to teach everybody that I have. And the reason why 20 people would follow me and leave corporate America is because I was real. I didn't lie to them. I was honest. Yeah. I'm not always pleasant. Sometimes I'm very strong and stern and aggressive. That's because I want to teach them because the world is not soft. The world is not polite sometimes. No, I can't I can't know. build sheep. I got to build wolves. I got to build people that are going to be able to live in this post-pandemic uh, modernization, progressive society and be and be uh, uh, capable. You know, I think sometimes I think sometimes when you have that strong personality, you know, you get the he's an asshole type thing. But the reality is um, and most most CEOs, most um, visionaries, let's you know call them visionaries. They see what's going on and all they want is what's best for the people that are around them that, you know, and a lot of people, guys, you guys listening, you know. If you picked up the phone and said, I need to ask Carlos a question, he's not going to say, no, I'm not going to take that call. Like he, because everyone that I know that is a visionary and they see this, they can see the disaster around us and they are trying to build tribes. They are trying to create that positive impact um, around them. You've been doing this for a long time um, at this level. So let's talk military because you were in the military for 13 years is that right? That's, 13. That's and I would imagine there were men that probably would have followed you to the death in battle. Um, and I'm sure that you guys, you've, you've seen way more than I think I would even be able to stomach. Um, but you also were helping build some logistic systems in the military. Talk to me about that. What, what happened there? How did you end up? Well, no, I know how you ended up because it's your Carlos. Honest, like so, I know that that's. But for thirteen years, right? You're you've gone to battle four times, um, in foreign countries, um, but yet you are still helping build some of the infrastructure in the military, right? So, talk to me about that. How did you end up going down that path, and then why did you get out? That's a great question, also. Tamara, you've been doing your research, so uh, fantastic on you. Uh, when I joined the military, I joined for one purpose, and that was to serve my country and to do something different. I was a professional musician before I joined the Army. I used to play salsa merengue for a living. Uh, I'm born and raised in Miami, Florida, uh, raised by a single mom. I, my dad left when I was uh, six and left my mom with five kids, so I learned how to be a grown-up really fast. I was paying bills when I was very young, helping my mother out. By the time I was 16, I was playing music. At the age of 17, I was a general manager for uh, 17 going on 18 for, for a company called Miami Subs. Um, I went to, I moved to Orlando to go run a store. I made that a successful store. 
still playing music. And one day I just had an epiphany. I want to go see the world and want to do something that matters. I didn't want to just work every day and not have meaning. So I joined the service. When I joined the service, I came in as an infantry guy. Um, I, I was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division. I was in the 1st 502nd Infantry. And shortly after joining the military, September 11th happened. It was a catastrophe. I'll never forget the chief of staff saying, hey, we're going to war, boys. We went to war. Hindsight, looking at the world as a 45-year-old man today versus the young kid that I was 20 years old at the time, right? I was excited about this opportunity to test my mettle as every young man is trying to see what they are capable of. Are they strong? Never questioning why I'm going where I'm going. I'm just doing the job. Today, I would have had a very different approach. <laughs> I would serve my country, take care of my people, but I would have asked a lot of questions. Why in the hell are we here? Right. I remember going there from one pretense, which was to find weapons of mass destruction. That didn't turn out to be the case. And we're here to liberate and oppress people. And then we ended up being there for 20 something years. Right. Crazy time. Um, but during that time frame, once you're there, your mindset shifts. Now you're there for your brother and your sister. Um, my experience in the military was positive. I've said that a million times. A lot of people think that the military is always about doing uh, catastrophic things. But there's a lot of camaraderie and a lot of team building that takes place. Even the, the, the infrastructure as a whole, if you look at the military, everything's standardized. Why? Because they have to mass replicate everything. So it teaches you and prepares you for the future. If you understand standard operating procedures, if you understand learning things by the numbers, that process-driven mind and the ability to scale is probably the best in the military than it is anywhere else in, in the world. Everything is engineered. The people that design all of these things are executives from other branches that consult, et cetera, to create these, these uh, platforms, right? So you learn how to disarm, how to... How to uh, check for bombs, you learn how to breach a building, you learn how to do all of these things by the numbers and you practice and practice and practice and practice, right? So the natural evolution of things was to do the job first and to find the gaps in the system and things that bothered me about why are we doing this not efficient, right? This continuous improvement mindset. I had that early on before I even knew it was continuous improvement. I'm like, why are we doing this? This does not make sense. Like, I understand the standardization, but it could be improved upon. Nope, it's the way that it is. And looking back, I was kind of naive. Because if you're trying to change a process for hundreds of thousands of people in many countries, and there's a lot of, 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 of politics involved in that process, yeah. and to change that, to maneuver this giant ship, it takes a long time, right? So even if I had the idea, it'd have to go up all these channels to finally be looked at, recognized, and then implemented as a change, right? It's very difficult to do in the federal government. So that was a, that was a, a problem for me. And I learned, I learned that, right? I was very good at solving problems, so I was a necessary evil for the military because I was very uh, industrious, which was different, and especially I chose to be an enlisted guy. I could have been an officer, but I chose to be an enlisted guy, and I was in the middle of the fight, and it was kind of frustrating at times because I, ha I, had, I had the ability to fix things that I was not allowed to fix because of the political nature of the business, yeah. which prepared me to become an entrepreneur. <laughs> Nothing pissed me off more than having the answer to the test and not being able to put it on the board oh, because yes. somebody didn't want it. Because, like, yeah. Absolutely infuriating. That's why I was fearless when I left the military. But the good part of it was everybody had to work as a unit. Didn't matter. Have to work as a unit. And here's the best part. You're given what you're given. You got people from all walks of life, regardless of the level of intelligence, education, bias, whatever. They're broken down in basic training. They're treated like crap on purpose so that every bias is eradicated out of your system. It's purged. And now I build you as a one unit, as one, one, one part of a team, right? When you build this team, what's magical about the team is you have no ability to replace any people, right? You're sitting there, you got what you got, and now you have to be a developer of talent. In order to be very good at your job, if you got a guy that, let's say he's your, your combo guy, but he's a master carpenter and you have a need for carpentry, well, I need to know this about them. So I got to know my people. I got to know their talents, their skill sets, their passions. I got to look at how am I going to bring out the greatness in them? How do I inspire them to do things that nobody else can do, right? And then how do I use their talents to the optimal ability or capability of whatever mission I'm trying to accomplish? And that in itself was probably the greatest school that I could have gone to was in the military. So I started off as an infantryman. I do the job. I'm pissed off about all the things I can't fix. And then I realized something. I want to give my brothers and sisters in the military a, a better option. So I decided to shift into logistics, or what they call it supply, in order to be able to acquire better tactical gear, better equipment, facilitate some of the movements. And that gave me a lot of latitude. Because when you're no longer in the fight, you're the guy that's creating these things. 
um, I was able to talk to sergeant majors and battalion commanders and fullback colonels and entice them, teach them what could be done, what the normal function of military acquisition was, and how I could kind of navigate through the rules and get what we needed faster because we found the loopholes, right? And that became my mission. I'd read through every policy and I'm like, okay, it says this, but it does not say this. Well, you know, I don't know if you could do it. I was like, well, you don't know until you find out. <laughs> like, let's do it. The worst thing that happens, you get a slap on the wrist. But yeah. it's wrong. It's not, it's not blatantly there. So I started maneuvering through the bureaucracy and found that I was able to supply and support our units in, in a better fashion. I ended up doing things that most guys of my pay grade were not allowed to do. And that gave me a lot of political clout in terms of solving problems, right? So I got extracted from a normal day-to-day job. And myself and another guy, his name was Alexis Hill, who was my, my uh, uh, boss at the time, we were allowed to travel around the country to fix problems and to help uh, build things, right? Which was an amazing opportunity for us. That's what it would spark this interest in, in supply chain and logistics. I got to see villages that needed wells. We got to see schools that needed to be developed. In the midst of that is where I met my wife. Matter of fact, in my last rotation in Afghanistan, I, I had already built such a network with, with the local nationals, with the, uh, uh, the coalition forces, who were there with the uh, civilians that were contracted. I, I, I built a lot of relationships there. And Martha, my, my wife today, she told me when she was just a lieutenant at the time that her dream was to build a uh, school for kids, a literacy program. And I told her, well, let's build it. And she thought I was bluffing, but I, I knew what I was after. Poor her, she didn't see me coming. <laughs> no interest whatsoever. But I saw her, I was like, hey, this lady... There's too many good-looking men out here in the military. I'm not going to stand out. They're in better shape than me. They're taller. They got broad shoulders on this little short guy, Hispanic kid. I was like, I got I to win a heart somehow. And the only two things I had going for me was my brains and my comedic value. So <laughs> I'm going to make her laugh, and then I'm going to wow her with executing something that she can't see. So we built a school. That school stayed there. It's Operation Can of Hat. You could Google this stuff. It's a public knowledge. That school was there all the way up until uh, Biden pulled everybody out of Afghanistan. But we created infrastructure then that outlasted us, a literacy program for kids. That's how she fell in love, by the way. She couldn't believe I could do that. And when we did it and executed that, and she's like, hey, maybe it's okay to be with this short Hispanic dude. <laughs> <laughs> I love Martha. Um, and I'm glad you brought her up. Um, I'm sitting here thinking, um, I, you're married. You've got two kids. You've got a daughter and a son. And we were literally just talking about your son just turned four. And I was sitting here thinking, his son is his mini me, and he is going to drive Carlos nuts when he starts being just like Carlos and wants to change the world. Because Carlos is going to be like, okay, let's just do it. I said, because I'm just sitting here thinking, poor Martha, she has got her hands full with the two of you boys. <laughs> She's going nuts. So David, um, we we just we, we had him tested a, a few months ago, and he's on the spectrum. But he's super high functioning. And... What's what's amazing about my son is his brain. So he's like 4.0 version of me. He can take me to school. Oh, so wow. he's only four years old. He just turned four and he's already finished all uh, all his uh, six and seven year old material. Oh, wow. So he's, he's adding, subtracting, knows all his numbers, knows his birth date, his address, knows how to get to and from school. He's not a conventional kid. So we're getting him into coding and we're sending him to a, a gifted program type school so he doesn't get bored. Right, right. Um, I, I, at a very young age, um, I used to, I was a troublemaker at school, not, not because I was creating problems. I, I just had a, a unique sense of humor. I'll leave it at that. I, my teachers, hopefully they watch this. I love every last one of them. They taught me so much and I drove them nuts. So I apologize. I, I was a clown. So I, I made fun of everything and nothing was off limits. I'd make fun of myself. Like there was nothing off limits to me. Comedy was huge. But they were, they were driven. I, a lot of that stemmed from being bored in class. Yeah. So yeah. I was the oldest of, of five kids. And and I, like I said, I was I had a single mom. So being the oldest of five kids, um, I got to go through school five times. So I had a science project. Guess what? My little sister had a science project. My other little sister had a science project. My brother had a science project. My other sister had one. So I'd have to teach them. And since my mom was working, she had no choice, right? She's the only source of income we had when we were kids. So she's working as much as she can. I learned how to cook, how to clean, and how to take care of school. So when, when I'd go take tests, I'd ace all my tests all the time. I always got A's. When I got to high school, 
I got into trouble because I got bored. And luckily I found music. Music was that discipline that got me out of trouble. That's why I didn't get into gangs. I didn't get into uh, drugs or any of that stuff. I didn't have time. I was, I was invested in my craft, but I remember I had a problem with truancy in school because I would skip class just to stay in band class. So I wasn't up to anything nefarious. I just didn't see the need to take the class that I knew I could master. So I'd, I'd go play music and, and my teacher, Mr. George, like I got to give him a shout out. I don't, I'm not sure if at 45 years old, I would have agreed with his ideology, but I was a really good musician. And he's like, Hey man, we got state competition. I need you to be up to par because we got to get that trophy. So he would allow me to hang out in his class, even though I was supposed to be in another class. I'd just show up with a hall pass, boom. And I'd start playing in his class, but I'd go back take my test and I get an A plus. And it worked until I was 16. At 16 years old, the principal brought me in, smacked me around. He's like, hey, Carlos, this is not college. You have to, by law, be in every one of your classes. I don't care if you got an A. I'm going to give you an F in conduct, so you're going to get a C. Yeah. And I was like, uh, oh, you can take that, or we kick you out of school. I'm like, all right, I'll take the C. So when I was 16 years old, I had all my A's and tests for academics, and had an effort kind of because I didn't show up to a lot of the classes. I had an A-plus across the board of music. And my mother, poor lady, like she wanted to choke me. <laughs> I, so I, I, my, my son has got this problem. He's extremely smart. I know for a fact if I don't challenge him and push him so that I test all his intellectual limits, he's going to get bored in class. He's going to end up in trouble. So I'm prepared for that. I think I got a plan. You got a well, plan. I got a plan. It may not work, man. I'm not going to spit up in the air, man. But I, I got a plan. I'm hoping it works. Uh, I have no doubt you will have it under control. Well, I I have literally had you for an hour. I am so grateful. Um, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you very much. And with your knowledge. Um, this is a conversation that our listeners are probably going to sit back and go, Oh, wow. Like I had no idea, you know, supply chain has been a problem for a couple of years. Um, and it's not just in the automotive industry. I mean, we've got it in the balloon industry too. Um, and so I love the fact that you shared that explanation and of, of the love of your family. I can so see that. Um, I'm so grateful. Um, thank you. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Well, I want to give you a shout out. Thank you for taking care of us. You've been a fantastic uh, teammate. Um, we know we're in great hands with you, and I'm always happy to talk about anything. Uh, I'm an open book, very transparent. We've been blessed. Uh, give a shout out to our team. If they happen to watch this, we're very honored that they chose to be with us, and we're taking over the world. We just landed two more contracts. So hopefully, yeah, our goal is in five years, we should be a billion-dollar enterprise. Wow. I'm trying to keep it private because I don't want to go public. We have no VC funding. There's no rich guys paying for us. We're simply recycling all of the money that we make. So everything that we make, we reinvest in ourselves and we're expanding our business. So we own 100% of the business. Wow. So if you're out there watching, let us know if you need help. Fabulous. Thanks, Carlos. Appreciate it. This is Tamara with Everything Is Up and Carlos Giannis. Thank you again, Carlos. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye. You bet. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Everything Is Up be sure to appreciate it. If you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you consume podcasts. This way you'll get updates as new episodes become available. And remember, everything is up. <laughs>